You refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the force. You believe it's this boy? At last, we will have revenge. Come on, Fear is the path, the dark side. Welcome back to Whose Filmography Is It Anyway, folks, where the points are just like audience expectations in the eyes of George Lucas. That's right. Uh, we are covering Star Wars. We've reached a long, long way in a many, many galaxies in our own worlds to get here. And we are beginning with the prequels. So <laughs> to anyone who has not been off before, this may take the cake, but uh, every, everything that uh, we've done in this show is kind of boiled down to this moment. So as always, I am your co-host, Josh Page, and with me as always, my co-host and friend, Steve Molina. At last, we will feel ourselves to the Jedi. At last, we'll have <laughs> At revenge. At last, we will have revenge. We oh my God. are here, man. We did it. Um, We did it. Uh, just to give a, the folks at home a, a little brush up, uh, at, at, you know, as we've said, uh, my and Steven's re relationship kind of started at, at our job together and the crux of our, our love for film, but our, the love for Star Wars, I think, goes even deeper. And <laughs> our friendship was really cemented by our shared love of Star Wars and then truly codified in the dark days of The Last Jedi <laughs> when we stood yes. alone on the island with Luke. Yes, we really did. Um, but we will we get to the last Jedi when we get to the last Jedi. Yes, well, yeah, I'll save. I'll save this. We'll save that for that. We are but, at um, least nine or ten pods away from that. So, um, good luck to all ye who enter here. I would say abandon hope, all ye who enter here. But we'll we'll just keep wish you the best of luck. Uh, Stephen and I are going to do our best to do our uh, a, a trimmed final exploration into the galaxy of, of lucas films uh we got a lot to cover so. a lot so we may as well just jump <laughs> in and before but actually before we jump in i just want to make it known we will be discussing spoilers not just in the phantom menace but throughout the entire saga of star wars so if you have not seen the phantom menace through the uh, the rise of skywalker and even maybe mandalorian i doubt mandalorian will come into play in this episode but spoilers ahead just We're, be warned yes all spoilers uh aforementioned so we don't you know we'll we'll try and do our best every episode but it's uh the spoiler warning for sure because we're going to cover everything not just the films but the canon in between the films and in the television i just felt series. spoiler warning this time is very much needed because very unlike so. uh, bong joon ho movies you know you're not going to click on a Parasite episode without having watched Parasite Star Wars. It's like <laughs> ambiguous. Who's going to watch? Who's going to click on this? But so, we're just gonna, we're going to cover everything. We're we're going to cover everything that we feel needs to be covered. So just a this is your final warning. <laughs> warning, warning. Let's get into the production and such. The budget for this movie: 115 million dollars. The box wow. office returns: 1.027 billion. So. Jesus. Say what you will about this movie. You know, you may love it, you may hate it. It still made a lot of money. Yeah. Lawrence Lucas um, was rolling in it. He was rolling in the dough. And I'll say this. If one of these movies can make that much money, Disney fucking stole Star Wars for $4 billion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
So for this movie, George Lucas was obviously the writer and the director taking on the dual responsibility, which we can debate whether that was a good thing or not later on. With him producing was Rick McCollum, who also worked with him on the Indiana Jones Chronicles. And also joining the crew was Doug Chang, who still works for Lucasfilm to this day. He used Ralph McQuarrie's art as a launching pad for this movie, but wanted to make things a little bit newer. His quote was, richer and more like a period piece, since it was the history leading up to A New Hope. So this is before fascism takes over and grinds everything down into the gray <laughs> sleet that we would see in the original trilogy. Yeah, this is really, this is the bare bones. Uh, well, that's something before. Lucas kind of alluded to in many interviews. He said, you know, from the onset, he was adamant that A New Hope, Star Wars, the original Star Wars was episode four. He actually got into arguments with Fox when that movie was coming out because he, in the opening crawl, he wanted to put episode four and Fox fought back and said, no, people are gonna be confused because they're gonna go where the first three. Right, right, right. And Lucas is like, up here, baby, in this <laughs> mind right here. <laughs> this mind, man, I know what I'm talking about, man. Um, and I think that's all the more reason as to why we are covering from, we're doing, we're gonna do our best to cover chronologically because I've had, I've had people in the past ask who have never seen Star Wars or showing someone who's never seen Star Wars to say, well, where do I begin? Do I begin from the original trilogy or do I begin from episode one? And I think that part of this show that we're doing is it's going to be for fans. It'll be for ultimately it's for people who have seen it. Right. So I think it's important that fans cover it chronologically so they know where all the pieces lie. Whereas a viewing experience for the first time, I think it's important to watch them in the order they were released. I will push back on that a little bit. I think that the perfect launching pad, especially for a modern audience, and this is actually like a new thought process, would be to start with Rogue One and then go from Rogue One into four, five, six, then go back to the prequels. For if I were to have Solo and then sequels. I I think you're, that's right. So now that we have more films than you and I had growing up, think that's how i would do it if i had you know a son or if i had a a, a person in my life who I, a young person who i wanted to show in this day and age i think that's where rogue one is a great place to i start. think rogue one is a good we, we could talk about that when we get to the rogue one of course no we but just I'm have just, a lot to cover so i don't want to get I'm into it too much bringing a full circle in terms of where we're beginning and why we're starting chronologically so i don't know if you have the blu-ray for the phantom menace but attached to it is an hour and six minute documentary that is fascinating And in it, it starts with George Lucas five months before filming. And he looks at the storyboards and he has a yellow Sharpie and a pink, uh, sorry, a yellow highlighter and a pink highlighter. He walks up to the storyboards and in yellow, he colors in what's going to be real. And in pink, he colors what will be CG'd. And that's the launching pad for this movie. This is the beginning of his like, tinkering with cg yeah it's really (laughs) and there's no more cg character than jar jar binks now say what you will about jar jar binks and there is plenty to say this was Mm -hmm. the first full cg character ever in a movie and for that he is monumental in a live action movie in a live action movie 
complete CG character in a live action movie. And for that, he is monumental. I didn't know that. I mean, and, uh, that's pretty, yeah, that's wild. And I'll be honest, watching it this time, the CG and Jar Jar hold up pretty uh, well. I agree. I actually think, and we'll get into more of it next week, but I, I think CG in Phantom Menace holds up better than the CG in Attack of the Clones, but that's also... Well, yeah. I The only character that I found was a little wonky this time around was Boss Nass, but we'll, we we can get to that when we get to that. Sure. Um, while we're on Jar Jar, I may as well add that Michael Jackson originally wanted to be Jar Jar Binks. Uh, George Lucas, uh, you know, previously worked with Michael Jackson on his Captain EO movie that was in the Disney theme parks, you know, mm-hmm. but I know of it, but yeah, luckily that did not come to fruition because that would just add a little extra hint of hatred to these movies. Oh yeah, it would have been a totally different. I mean, the reception of that character, I think, would have been even worse. Um, Jar Jar's interactions with Anakin would definitely take on a new light. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about Maul for a minute. Ian Mm -hmm. McCaig, who was the concept artist, said, "Quote: I drew my worst nightmare, which was that uh, face that's peeping in the window at you late at night and is barely alive, like a cross between a ghost and a serial killer, staring at you, and it's raining, and it." and the rain is distorting the face. So I drew that and stylized versions of it, red ribbon instead of rain, and put it in a folder and the meeting passed it over to George. George opened it and went, oh my God, slammed it shut, handed it back and said, give me your your second worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh um, man. So, but that, so that, so, the concept artist for Darth Maul, that sta- so that person stayed, the guy you just mentioned? No, that's, I mean, he might still be at Lucasfilm, but, uh, but I mean, like the one he's still at Lucasfilm is, that I know is Doug Chang. What I mean is that 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 the first guy, you um, he was the one who ultimately got the- Go ahead with To come Darth up with the, the green light to give the Darth Maul concept art. Yeah, because with, with the, his second worst nightmare. <laughs> that's so funny because the mall, I mean, all, I mean, visually we can talk about it as we go along, but the concept, the visual concepts are pretty amazing for this movie because of how, how much of a contrast they are to the original uh, trilogy. I think it's what part of the movies, the prequel trilogy Santa is how different it looks. I think that's one of the, it's, it's best features is, is that it establishes an entirely different universe and yet it, ble- it bleeds into the original. So part of that is mentioning mall is it's one of the more unique and terrifying, I think, uh, He's probably the concepts. most terrifying character that has ever been put on the screen for Star Wars. Oh yeah, it's until good. maybe Borgullet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in Rogue One. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Borgullet. Um, so filming started in June 26, 1997, and ended on September 30th. So pretty quick shoot. It's no secret that George Lucas hates filming. He hates it. He has talked about it numerous times. Being on the set is his least favorite thing. That's so funny. Where he thrives is in the editing booth. Uh, This was shot on 35 millimeter, the last Star Wars movie to do so until The Force Awakens. I was going to say, that's another note that comes up is uh, when I watch this, every time I watch it, I always think how much it actually benefits, for me, how much it benefits looking like it's shot on film. It actually looks like an actual authentic movie where uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith feel very, very digital, very CGI heavy. Yeah, it works for me. 
in Revenge of the Sith, but for Attack of the Clones, we'll get to it next week. Um, sure. <clears throat> they filmed in London, where they took over a, Ro- a Rolls-Royce factory and built the sh- sets of the ship, where actually Lucas walked Spielberg through the set and was like, this is going to happen here. This is going to happen here. Naboo sequences were shot in Italy, not all, but specifically like the walking through the cap, you know, the main um, Capitol building was done in Italy. And Tatooine was once again filmed in Tunisia, which the cast and crew found a little brutal. Uh, It was 104 degrees by 9 a.m., 135 degrees by 3 p.m. So if you're Jar if you are Ahmed Best who plays Jar Jar Binks and you're wearing this heavy fucking costume, it's hot. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, so models were also used for this movie. It wasn't entirely CG. Uh, so some ships had models and specifically the pod racers, there were models done for that. No need to really mention this, but John Williams came back to do the music for this movie. Well, because cool of that course. After, it's cool that after almost a 20 year gap, he was still like, yeah, I'll come back and do this. And he continued to. As What's more amazing on. to me is not that he came back for this one, but that he came back for the Disney era movies. But we'll get to those when we get to Of those. course, yeah. But John Williams is a key player in all these movies. He's incredible. He's an incredible consistency. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later. But obviously, Duel of the Fates is on this uh, album. And if you translate from Sanskrit to English, the lyrics read, under the tongue root, a fight most dread, and another raging behind in the head. This It comes from a medieval Welsh poem. Now, ironically, the album was released before the movie came out. And oh, I know this. I album, know this piece of trivia. On the album, there is a song called Qui-Gon's Noble End. <laughs> <laughs> By setting up. Oh, no. Before the movie even starts. Oh, no. What was going to happen? It makes me glad these movies came out when I was young enough and when, when we were young enough and that the internet wasn't really, I don't know, like we, were, we weren't A, old enough and B. Uh, Did you see this did, in theaters? I didn't ask, but. I don't remember. I can remember. I re- All right. So just, I know you and I were doing this for some of our previous shows where we talked about the first time we had seen these movies. And I remember my, my memory of Phantom Menace is that I had a VHS tape of it. And when my family, we used to go on road trips all the time. We'd go upstate, we'd go wherever, you know, and we had a little TV that plugged into our, our van, our family van. And my little brother and I would sit in the back seat. And for whatever reason, Phantom Menace was one of our go-to movies. Well, so I remember Star Wars. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it's just funny having grown up, like being a child and grown up with the original trilogy. And I think part of this will go into discussion of course, but I think that watching it at a young age on loop on a VHS is like part of like what embeds it being special to me, despite it being flawed. But I'll save yeah, all that. We'll for definitely later. talk about that later because this movie <laughs> definitely holds a special heart place in my heart. Now, yeah, the last tidbit of information I have on the music, because there's one other thing I want to talk about after, <clears throat> is that Augie's great municipal band, the very end song, uh, when the parade is going through yep. Thebes in Nebu. It's Palpatine's theme, the doom. At a different, um, but it's at a different tempo. It's, it's at, a, at different a different tempo and it's in a different uh, pitch. I had no idea. That so, is amazing. Yeah. And of course they'd like 
lighten it up a little bit, but it is Palpatine's theme. Wow. So let's get into the actors. Natalie agreed to do the trilogy without reading any scripts. Something um, I'm sure she regrets. <laughs> same, same with Neeson. Yeah. So eager to be in the film, he signed out without having read the script. Neeson, it makes more sense because it was a one and done situation. But Natalie, it's like, I guarantee by the third one, she was like, what did I do? Well, Natalie Portman, <laughs> what did I do? Natalie Portman also proved herself to go more towards... And I don't even mean this as a knock, but she goes, she's grow, gravitated more towards um, more indie or um, smaller productions, even if they're Oscar nominated. It's more. I don't mean to be mean, but those kinds of movies are where she thrives. I don't. No, think of course, she can and that's what I'm saying. It's not speaking. back. It's not backhanded. She's great for like the movies like Black Swan and Garden State, and like there's a reason that yeah. she thrives in those. There's like even Star Wars Vendetta. Oh, of but course. When you get to this or Thor or movies that where she's it's, in it and it's heavy CG, it's like I don't think she can conceptualize what is going on around or behind. I her. don't think it's her. I just not in my opinion, it's just not her thing. No, it's not. I just want to add, maybe she will prove me wrong with Thor: Love and Thunder because Taika Waititi is a great director of actors, not just of like conceptual stuff. Where sure, same with you about George, but he's not an actor's director. In no, fact, of course not. He never someone we could talk about right now is Terrence Stamp, who played Chancellor Valorum. He's a good man. He said, quote, I didn't rate him, George Lucas, that much as a director, really. I didn't feel like he was a director of actors. He was more interested in stuff and effects. He didn't interest me, and I wouldn't think I interested him. <laughs> he was then asked, why did you take the part in the movie? He said, for Natalie Portman. He saw her in Leon the Professional. And then he followed up by saying, I did meet her and she was absolutely enchanting. But on the day I'm supposed to do my scene with her, for which I traveled halfway around the world, I said, where's Natalie? And George says, that's Natalie and points to a bit of paper on the wall. <laughs> and it was just boring. <laughs> so Terrence that, Stamp has some very candid things to say about his experience. That's on amazing because I would love to, so like very similarly to what we said in our Disney show about I would love to see an office style TV show about like, whereas like um, if Walt Disney was like the Michael Scott and like Disney was like the company going on behind the scenes, I would, I would love to see someone make a TV show about the same concept, but with George Lucas and like the people going around the behind the scenes. So they're filming all these movies and each season, I guess, would follow a different making of the movie that George is involved in, but George is the central character, but you get a Terrence Stamp and that's one of the conversations. It's just like, that would be a whole episode in itself. You know what I mean? And yeah, I don't know, man. That's good. Uh, some brutal stuff to say. I, that is really funny. Frank Oz obviously came back to be Yoda again, and he actually did the puppeteering until the Blu-ray release replaced the puppet with the CG Yoda. I want to just interject for a second because I never really had a problem with it growing up, but in, in watching it, I'm like getting older and looking back because the VHS tape I had, and I think it was, I guess, the DVDs, um, had the puppet in it. And I want to say that when you look at the puppet, the puppet in Empire Strikes Back and you look at the puppet in Phantom Menace, the puppet in Phantom Menace is so well detailed, but it's got these, but like the big, like almost cross-eyed look off. is very jarring. And I never thought it. And then you look back and like, as much as I think that CGI Yoda in the Blu-ray release is jarring, it's, it feels more in line with what the, the look of Yoda is because that old puppet, as well detailed as it is, it kind of doesn't really yeah. look like Yoda. We will talk more about the George Lucas editions of these movies, especially when we get to the original trilogy. 
but I feel like this was a change that wasn't necessarily the worst in the world. No, I agree. I completely agree. Ewan McGregor, obviously playing Obi-Wan, actually got to choose his own lightsaber for this movie. He That's got like cool. a box of lightsabers and was like, which one do you want? The That's rejected awesome. lightsabers were reappropriated for Attack of the Clones for other Jedi to use. Sure. And just one final anecdote that I have is that he and Ray Parker, who was the body of Darth Maul, trained so hard on their lightsaber duel that they had to slow down the fight for filming. But that's amazing. When they got when they filmed it, the people who did the editing still thought that the footage was uh, fastened up. It's like they couldn't, even though they slowed it down, like they practiced that hard, even though they slowed it down, it was too fast for the camera. They were just so good at what they were doing. Um, While you're on Ewan McGregor for a sec, um, it said one of the top IMDb notes is uh, Ewan McGregor studied many of Sir Alec Guinness's films, including A New Hope, but uh, much of his resume to ensure accuracy in everything from his, from the accent to the pacing of his words. And I just want to just make a quick you know, just to stroke you, you McGregor for a sec. And I think that that little, those, those mannerisms he has for Alec Guinness carries him, his performance throughout all three of these movies of the prequel. I mean, I don't mean to jump, but because I, I was probably going to bring this up in Revenge of the Sith, but he's arguably the best uh, actor in these movies. Him and Ian McDermott are probably the ones that are so having good. the most fun and are probably the best acting performances they nail what they need to for the performance i mean not that people watch star wars for the acting but like he's that's the note for phantom menace is that dewey mcgregor studied his his al guinness's films even this early on and so it's like i i like that that consistency stays with that performance i actually lied i do have one final note and that is that ewan mcgregor's uncle is the actor who played wedge antilles in the original star wars movies and he told him don't take the part (laughs) Wow, that's pretty. That's pretty wild. Um, I don't know if you have any notes regards post release, as in like when the movie drops. Because I was just gonna say, I I figured that was gonna fall into a final discussion, but we can talk about that now. Well, just to just to go off the notes here is that it says, and I remember hearing about this. It said one of the top notes this week of the first teaser trailers release, many major movie theaters reported up to 75% of their audiences paying full price for a movie and then walking out after the trailer was shown. So just to, <laughs> just to, just to pregame the hype for this movie and the, and the inevitable disappointment that many people had with it, something that was so big because no one knew what it was. And ultimately, and this is just a tease of final discussion is that I think ultimately when expectations are that enormous, it's, I don't know how you can meet, like, you know, I don't know how you can be fully satisfied, oh. but all that to say is for box offices to skyrocket like that based off of a teaser trailer alone shows that this movie had serious hype from the get-go. We're not going to talk about this right now, but that was almost the brilliance of The Force Awakens. Say what you will about that movie. People sure. walked away satisfied from that movie. Mm-hmm. Where this movie, Phantom Menace, we should note, came out 16 years after Return of the Jedi. Right. So it had been 16 years of waiting. And not only has it been 16 years of waiting, they knew people knew that this movie was in development for three years. In fact, Jake Lloyd, when he was cast for this role, 
he told his class like, yeah, I'm going to be away for the next couple months because I'm going to be filming Star Wars. And his, his fellow classmates raised their hands. And the first question he got was, you're filming it now. Why do we have to wait till 1999 to see it? <laughs> you know? So. Man, hype. The hype. So, so that obviously builds, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, let me just see if there's anything else. I think that was the big note, the release, because the, the only other tag for that is that 20th Century Fox released the first trailer with strict instructions that it not be shown before a certain date. But a Canadian movie theater accidentally showed it a day early and the theater lost complete rights to show. <laughs> George so, Lucas doesn't play. He, doesn't, he does not play around. So um, yeah, let's... Uh, Let's get into let's, the plot. Let's get into this thing. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems in dispute. Hoping to resolve the matter with a blockade of deadly battleships, the greedy Trade Federation has stopped all shipping to the small planet of Nebula. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates this alarming chain of events, the Supreme Chancellor has secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, the Guardians of Peace and Justice of the Galaxy, to settle the conflict. I know, I'm just going to stop you right there. It's funny that even from the opening crawl alone, it's like, you know, you look at A New Hope's opening crawl about like, you know, uh, the princess and Darth Vader, and it's like, it's very, not that it's easy to understand, it's just like, it's very straightforward, where this, it's like, a blockade of deadly battleships the greedy trade federation has stopped stopped all like i can just imagine being like a a a grown-ass sweaty nerd basically who i am now and just watching this in 1999 and be like okay like trade federations to me it's comparable to the rise of skywalker and the opening crawl begins with the dead speak and you're just like oh no (laughs) Oh, uh, no. <laughs> right, right. And I think there's a reason that us being the ages we were, and I don't know, we'll save all this, the stuff about how we viewed it then and how we view it now. But I mean, it's just funny that even from the crawl, it's like, nope, not going to be what you thought it was. <laughs> oh, but as always, we digress. <clears throat> Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn, one and only Liam Neeson, and his apprentice Obi-Wan Kenobi, the one and only Ewan McGregor, arrive on Trade Federation command ship. Though Qui-Gon does not think that the negotiations will last long, upon learning that the ambassadors are Jedi Viceroy Newt Gunroy, played by Salas, Salas, Salas Carson, uh, contacts Darth Sidious, a.k.a. Sheev Palpatine, the one and only Ian McDiarmid. Sidious assures Gunroy that uh, he will make the Trade Federations take over of the planet legal. As for the Jedi... The Chancellor should never have brought them into this. Kill them immediately. Smoke pervades the air, and B-1 droids are sent in to ensure that the Jedi are dead. Instead, Jedi emerge from the room and make their way to the cockpit. The blast shield's doors are put down, but Qui-Gon easily melts the door. Quick note there, that use of the lightsaber through the door and the melting, it was little nuances like that are fascinating because, like, it makes you wonder these tricks. Like, what what else can the lightsabers do? What else can the Force do? And I well, like when they... in a matter of minutes, these opening sequences, we are already shown several new things that Jedi are capable of. Because Which is cool. As we're about to get to, not only can they get through doors with their lightsabers, but they can, like, run really fast. You know, it, there's, like, these new Force abilities that are just, like, interesting. I think, and again, it'll be, a, I think it'll really be a recurring theme in 
just talking about the prequels, but all, all the the all the the introductions to new storytelling and technology and character traits is kind of like will be one of the cruxes of what makes these uh, movies special. But um, new shouting. Uh, this is impossible before this they is get impossible. <laughs> I want to say uh, the accents of these. Yeah, we should definitely take a note and just, a note. just there was a big backlash against the Trade Federation characters characterizations because they clearly have a stereotypical Asian, <laughs> not just design, but accent. And they're literally laid out as greedy in the opening crawl. It's really something. And I it's will say, pretty rough. I will say, Star Wars is probably one of the most diverse franchises in in you know in film existence. Like they're all about you know different species and whatever planets. And so it's it's so funny you get to this movie and there's these puppet Asian stereotyped uh, creatures and they when they speak, this is impossible. And I'm not only like, that, uh, but their mouths literally move up instead of down, and it's like <laughs> rough stuff. And we should also mention now, while we're in this conversation, there was a big backlash on Jar Jar's racial depictions too, because he is seen as a blumbering idiot who is babbling like a racist caricature from the 1860s, you know? I think he gets a little more leeway only because of how goofy he is, and he's not exactly stereotyped. I mean, he's stereotyped, but I think these yeah viceroy and these guys i i don't know i it always stands out to me with the, with the asian accents but before they get in Drodika shoot at the jedi forcing him to sneak out into the invading droid ships but not before one final zinger you were right about one thing master the negotiations were short Classic. hilarious uh uh, on the planet Sabe, uh, Kira Knightley, disguised as Queen Amidala, is talking with Senator Palpatine before all communications are cut off. Her council knows what this means, invasion. It's really funny to see Kira Knightley in these movies and not even know that it's Kira Knightley. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's wild. She literally started her career by being a double. For, she was, uh, yeah, she was a nobody. For, uh, she was literally started by being a double for Natalie Portman. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Qui-Gon is running from the droid ships and inadvertently saves Jar Jar Binks, Ahmed Best. Jar Jar says he owes Qui-Gon a life debt, which the Jedi brushes off as he does not find Jar Jar particularly intelligent, to say the least. Um, Jar Jar claims he is smart as he can speak. Qui-Gon quickly resorts, the ability to speak does not make you intelligent. I just want to throw that line in because that's one of my favorite lines in the entire movie. It's a great line. I mean, it applies to a lot of... (laughs) A lot of people. To, uh, go on. Uh, well, as we see with the Gungan, what, what's his name? Boss Nass. I mean, it's. Yeah. No, never mind. We'll get to that. Me. We'll get to that in literally five Com- seconds. Co- comparisons to uh, you know other people. Master and Apprentice find each other, but need to find a way to avoid the droids. Jar Jar recommends going to the Gungan city immediately upon his return. The other Gungans are shocked to see Jar Jar. Do something big, do do it this time. That's a, a recurring line in our own. Our own uh, friendship. Big doo doo this time. <laughs> you say go to the boss. You say in big doo doo this time. Um, Jar Jar and the Jedi are taken for Boss Nass. Brian, uh, Brian blessed. There, Qui Gon is able to Jedi mind trick Na- uh, Nass into giving him a ship to go through the core and Jar Jar as navigator. The trip to the core is not a smooth ride, but 
there's always a bigger fish. I want to say the one-liners. I don't. I know we nixed that with one of our categories, but I feel like there's so many more one-liners. This movie has more one-liners than I think any other Star Wars movie. I was gonna say like I'm kind of sad that we nixed the award, but I don't think they 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 pop up as often as they do here. Because like yeah, even in rewatching, I'm like there's really every scene, and it really is like even when they're silly or stupid, like. They're very memorable. No, lines. that's what I, I had a problem while writing the synopsis because I was like, what do I cut? What do I not? Because even when Jar Jar's leaving Boss Nass's place, he's like, he gets what is Misa saying? You know, like it's, classic it's so lines good. like that. I don't, I don't know. I love it, man. Uh, but let's, let's, we'll just got to power through this thing. The droid army descends upon Thedes. Uh, Qui Gon, Obi Wan, and, and Jar Jar manage to locate the queen and convince her to go to Coruscant. They load up to the H-type Nubian yacht and take off. They are nearly shot down, but R2-D2 manages to fix the ship just in time. Uh, that is our introduction to R2-D2. They break past the blockade, but the hyperdrive is destroyed. Qui-Gon decides the ship should head to Tatooine for repairs, as the planet is under the purview of the Hutt's as a job of the Hut, uh, not the Trade Federation. So now yeah. they're going under undercover. Just a uh, fun fact about Hutt's they can their species can live up to around six to nine hundred years so in this movie jabba is around like 400 years old um that's just cool. in case you were curious on the outskirts of tatooine qui-gon jinn jar jar and r2 make ready to go into the city they are stopped by captain panaka hugh korshi now <clears throat> just a fun fact in a later book Captain Panaka becomes a moth of the uh, Naboo region, like oh, really? part of the galaxy. He's one of Palpatine's go-to guys. He's That's a cool. moth. He informs them that the Queen's maiden, Padme, Natalie Portman, will be joining them. Now, I just want to take a moment and stop and say, her name is Padme Amidala. So some people are not doing their research here. <laughs> because how the fuck, like, the Jedi clearly didn't read their press briefings because they should know that Padme is the queen. Newt Gunry should know that Padme is the queen. Palpatine should know Padme is the queen. How is no one putting two and two together here? Is this, I mean, they never established that it's public knowledge. I guess unless- The queen, queen on Naboo, it, as we will find out in the next movie, is not a royal title. It is an elected official. Right. So she ran as Padme Amidala. Okay, so how, I guess at some point, you know, if she is presented as Padme to Qui-Gon Jinn, you would think he would have read his briefing from the Jedi Council and said, Padme, hmm, that sounds like the Queen's name. You know what I'm saying? Well, the movie never draws attention to it. So unless you're, you know, someone like yourself or that you would look into it. I'm not saying you're wrong. I've never even th once thought that. But <laughs> it's very, um, I'm it's just, a very valid uh, point. Well, I mean, were her parents? Did I don't know. I don't. I can't even really remember the mention of her parents because I don't her know if it's something that parents are in a cut, like a deleted scene in Attack of the Clones. But they are professors on the planet of Naboo. But like you said, it's that the queen is uh It's an elected thing. It's not. It's a, an elected an title. It's I didn't not know an it's inherited that... royal title. That's why she becomes senator in the next movie because she leaves her she steps down yeah she doesn't step down her time in office is run out there's a book about padme and if you read it 
the people of Naboo wanted her to run for an extra term, but she's like, it's unconstitutional. I'm not going to do it. And then she is put instated as senator of Naboo to so take Palpatine's place. She's already got the reputation. So you're what you're saying. It's, it's a very valid point that the Jedi don't do their research. Some, and neither <laughs> did Viceroy Gunry. Like, what are you doing here? So anyway. this is uh, a no, notable, uh, not plot hole, but... <laughs> Notable Lucas uh, yeah. error. Watto, Andy Sacomb, Ty Doran, junk shop owner, takes Qui-Gon through his stockpile. He has what Qui-Gon needs, but will not accept Republic credits. Qui-Gon tries to Jedi mind trick him, but it does not work. In the shop, Padme is rummaging until she hears a voice from behind. Are you an angel? <laughs> this child, Jacob Lloyd, tells Padme as soon as he is free, he plans to be a pilot. Padme is shocked to discover that slaves still exist in the galaxy and asks, quote, you're a slave? Anakin, inflamed, quickly says, my name is Anakin and I'm a person. <laughs> the meeting between future husband and wife is short-lived. Qui-Gon comes back into the store and tells the crew that they are leaving. Walking through the city of Mos Espa, Jar Jar sees dangling meat and decides to just go for it, because of course he does. This quickly divulges into an altercation with the city hotshot, a Doug, Sebulba, Louis McLeod. Anakin emerges to save Jar Jar. With a sandstorm on the way, Anakin invites Qui-Gon and his team to the house, which I gotta say, not condoning slavery, but that's like a pretty big house for a slave. <laughs> and they seem to have fresh fruit and uh, I was going to say lots of food life. to go around. It makes me wonder the hierarchies. Like I just said before, that there's a lot of diversity in Star Wars, including classism and the wealthy and the poor. And they don't seem to have it that bad. Again, they're still slaves. I'm not. Oh no! Well, of course we're not it's bad. It's just <laughs> you know, for slaves, you know, you think a shack in the backyard that's like half built. And like, you just stay there, you know? You don't expect like fresh fruit and three extra rooms for people to sleep over. He's got a whole bedroom where he can build C-3PO. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, on Coruscant, Sidious tasks his apprentice, Darth Maul, Ray Parker, voiced by Peter, Jesus, Seraphin, I'm not even You can do it, I believe in you. I'm not even gonna attempt it. Seraphin, Seraphinowicz. Sure, the tick from the Amazon show with oh, that's uh, right. anyway he is tasked with finding Amidala in a gleeful in as gleeful a voice Maul can muster he says at last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi at last we will have revenge just a right. note that's one of I think three lines that Maul has <laughs> yeah he has three lines <laughs> or yep. something like that a trap is set as the Naboo at Nubian yacht receives a fake hologram message from C.O. Bibble, Oliver Ford Davis. Obi-Wan, realizing it is a trap, tells the ship's captain to turn it off, but it is too late. Maul has locked onto the location. Now, I just want to make an extra note of that because that's something that I didn't pick up on until like a couple years ago. Maul was able to locate them on Tatooine because he sent this fake message to the ship. And by clicking it, he honed onto the beacon. That's how oh, he- I didn't- that's how he pinpointed them to Tatooine because he didn't just like magically go to Tatooine. Like that wasn't just a guess, you know? Right. No, that's good. 
At the Skywalker home, Anakin questions the laser sword Qui-Gon is carrying. He and Padme quickly reveal their true identity and purpose on the planet. Like, real quickly, he flips. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm here because the Jedi sent me. Like, dude, have a little more, like, whatever. <laughs> Shmi, Pernilla, August, suggests using gambling, Watto's weakness against him. Anakin volunteers to pod race for them. Preparations are made, including Qui-Gon taking blood from Anakin to test his midi-chlorine count. It oh is at 20,000 higher than Yoda's or any Jedi's for that Just matter. Just a quick note about the Chlorians. That's the introduction. That's part of one of the first things that made so many fanboys angry. Which I, I, I will just say... Stand on it. Go for it. Well, what I will say is, in hindsight, I think I've never understood why people get so angry about it because there are people like Luke and then there's people like Han Solo who are either Force-sensitive or they're not. I don't think it's so much like a... Like, I believe that, like, you know, the force is a spiritual thing and embodies the universe, as Yoda says, whatever. But I think the idea that you're putting something on paper that's tangible for audiences to be able to say, oh, this person is very, whatever, spiritually powerful in the Star Wars universe. They can, they're more powerful with the idea of whatever the force is in their DNA. And I don't think that that's such a bad thing. Now, the, the reason people are pissed is because they took what Alec Guinness said in the original Star Wars trilogy, which is vague to begin with, to heart. You know, there's the assumption that anyone can hone into the Force if they just reach out, open their mind, and feel it. Sure. But like you, I don't mind midi-chlorians because it gives a reasoning to how specific characters can 100%. get into the Force. You know, like... I understand that everyone can technically reach the force, but like anyone here who meditates can technically reach Nirvana, sure. but it takes a special kind of animal to like truly use the force the way that the Jedi do. So I don't 100%. necessarily mind the midi-chlorians as much. Well, especially that Lucas is expanding his universe. He's just giving explanation as to why some characters may literally be more powerful than others. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like a, I don't know. But anyway, I just know that's a big footnote for this movie, is the midichlorians. Shmi also reveals that Anakin was immaculately conceived. We'll get to that later on in the podcast. Prior to the race, Qui-Gon bets not only for the hyperdrive, but for Anakin's freedom. In an epic sequence, the pod race unfolds. I didn't want to focus too much on it in the synopsis. It is we'll be talking about it later. really epic. We'll get to it later. Anakin I'm going to talk win- about it later. Yeah, Anakin wins. Anakin's elation is doubled when he finds out that he has been freed, but is heartbroken when he discovers Shmi cannot come with him. Anakin promises his mother that he will come back for her. That sequence is on paper heartbreaking. I don't know if it really pans out too well on the screen. Uh, between the two of them, bye. Yeah. No, I think it works. I think it's one of the rare emotional beats of the story that does work. I think that Jake Lloyd's just at the, the I don't remember at this point in his life it was. I just don't think he can sell the really the acting, but like, I think the moment works for what it needs to because they call back to it in the next movie. And it, I, I don't know, it stands out enough, but maybe I've just seen the movie enough times that I just yeah. give it the benefit of the doubt. Qui-Gon and Anakin, for some reason, are running to the ship. They have no reason to really be running, but they are being pursued. Qui-Gon shouts, Anakin, drop! And... Let me just say one thing. Darth Maul doesn't know who Anakin is, but he's like ready to run this fucking kid over real quick. Mm-hmm. Darth Maul reveals himself and duels Qui-Gon. They narrowly escape, 
Qui-Gon, out of breath, lays on the floor as Obi-Wan and Anakin question him, which again, he's literally out of breath, laying on the floor. Give him a minute before you start berating him with the questions. Anakin and Obi-Wan, future master and apprentice, officially meet. A uh, iconic moment. Pleased to meet you. Um, waiting on the landing bay for Queen Amidala, Senator Palpatine, and Chancellor Valorum, Terrence Stamp, the one and only. The politicking begins. Palpatine warns the Queen that the Senate is broken, run by a weak Chancellor beholden to bureaucrats. Palpatine urges her that if no action be immediately taken, the Queen should call for a vote of no confidence on Valorum. Palpatine's plan works flawlessly. As he told Gunroy in the beginning, he has bogged down the Senate to inaction. Amidala makes her plea to the Senate only for the Trade Federation's representatives to put a motion forward to investigate the, few, the matter further. The motion is seconded and Valorum has no choice but to adhere. Amidala calls for a vote of no confidence. With sympathy for Naboo, Palpatine emerges as the front runner chancellor candidate, which I'll say, well, you know, we don't have to go deep the plot and final discussion because we're going over it now, but I just love these little moments that seem like with all the politics and, and whatnot, they seem irrelevant, but these are basically, it's, it feels like with moments like these, it's if, like Lucas is slowly moving his chess pieces forward. It's kind of like- While we're on it, we may as well talk about this now. I think that this movie is ahead of its time in regards to politicking. Sure. You know, people like myself loved Game of Thrones, specifically the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones, where it's not even battles, it's a majority of people walking and talking politics. Yeah. And George Lucas, I think, was onto something, but it comes down to some a problem that he has throughout the entire prequel trilogy where he is almost too subtle about the politicking and he doesn't film it in an interesting enough way. He sit, he films most of these scenes with people in a room sitting down talking. I completely agree. I, I think that as an adult, they've become some of the more interesting, and that's why I'm making a note about it now, is they, they've become some of the more interesting and engaging parts of the prequel trilogy for me. But what you said about them sitting and talking makes it seem like it would be boring to any child or even any I don't want to say simple Star Wars fan, but as someone who just wants to watch for the adventure or the, the thrill of, of, of a visual, uh, whatever, action, adventure, sci-fi epic. And so these scenes kind of feel like they bog down the movie. And that's why when so many people complained years ago and still complain now about, oh, it's too political. There's too much political nonsense. And it's like, I really, that's why I said, like, it feels like he's moving chess pieces forward because like this stuff with every, every scene with Ian McDermott is like, it's really he, it's, you can see Ian McDermott's Palpatine literally moving the chess pieces throughout the prequel trilogy. So good. Anytime, anytime he's on screen, I mean, he's like a major part of Revenge of the Sith. But in these first two movies, anytime he's on screen, it's like it's really important. It's like really, it's not important to just important to pay attention but it's really um engaging because like you know that's going to lead to something bigger and that's and what the scene one does. of the things i think george lucas was trying to do and what is expunged upon in specifically the clone wars is he's paralleling the bogged down senate to the bogged down jedi council which we're about mm -hmm. to get to his i think his thesis for the original trilogy is that political infighting can lead to despotism, which right. 
we clearly learned the hard way in 2020 if you're an American. <laughs> and that's why I think it's 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 um pointed that you you said it's like he he was onto something early because it's like, like other topics like even like with Bong Joon-ho we were talking about it being like a a representation of what is actually going on in the world and it being ahead of its time in terms of it being more relevant now than it was then. Well, George you could Lucas, say the same thing. Uh, was very clear in some interviews that Revenge of the Sith has clear parallels to the Iraq war. We'll get into that in Revenge of the For Sith. For that movie, but yeah. These movies are very political. These are his political theses. And I think that's part of the problem with the reception of this movie. People wanted more action and adventure and George Lucas was delving into the more complicated world because he matured into an adult between oh, the original trilogy and these movies he's you know the original movies are about the idealism of taking down tyranny but here it's the unraveling mm-hmm. of a republic into tyranny how does can... that happen and it doesn't just magically happen um i think that that the word, and I, I, I really don't want to tease final discussion, but it's like, I think that that word maturing that you used is, is important. It's like, it's the key word because it's like, I think the reason that fanboys will never, well, it seems like they'll never be satisfied with Star Wars is because they want what Star Wars is in their minds, which is what the original trilogy is. Yeah. And so what happens is, is as the franchise evolves for better or worse, like we've seen with both the prequel and the sequel trilogy has both their ups and downs, people are going to complain no matter what, because they only want what they think they know. Now, what, what he's laying the groundwork here for with the politics and stuff, it may seem boring or it's easy for anyone to write it off as be like, oh, it's, it's simple. It's, it's, it's boring. It's talky. It's whatever. It's nonsense. And yet, like, like you said, like, that's like the crux of like George Lucas growing up. You know what I mean? It's. The thing is, it's not simple. It's very complex machinations moving in tandem, which is why Palpatine's plan is so brilliant. It's just people didn't necessarily, I guess, want to watch that. You know, they wanted right, to watch that's... where, you know, we can get into uh, The Empire Strikes Back, which is mature in of itself, but it's mature in the way that it is building up characters. Mm-hmm. This movie is mature in the way that it is building up a world. Correct. So, that's a great way of putting it. And that kind of ties directly into the Force Awakens opening and then how drastically different that is from the prequels and how much it feels like the original trilogy. And we'll get well, to that when we, we can, yeah, get to the, Force the Awakens. Force Awakens, again, very fun. Not necessarily the most mature of Star Wars movies, but then you get to The Last Jedi, which is probably the most mature Star Wars movie. And people backlash. So I and guess we'll save the all that for the is, shows, yeah, but... I guess, but I guess the lesson is people like immaturity. So let's go on, please. <laughs> as the as the grown men continue to talk about Star Wars, listen, I understand my maturity in Star Wars. All right, everyone else can just be every hate. All the haters can just you know. We're I mean. just so mature. I'm just... <laughs> We're so mature that I'm pronouncing the word mature. Mature, mature. As mature. All right, all right let's let's get um, back on track here. Uh, with sympathy for Naboo, Palpatine emerges as the front runner chancellor candidate. In a different location, but no less political environment, Qui Gon and Obi Wan speak to the Jedi council the bombshell Qui-Gon drops is that he has encountered a Sith in their arrogance the council dismisses this key aid Mundi immediately scoffing impossible now you would know this better than I is this the first time a Sith has been mentioned in 
read the next line and then we'll get into it. The Sith have been... <laughs> Yeti Mundi says, the Sith have been extinct, have been for, extinct a millennia. for a millennia. Never... <laughs> so... I literally just asked, answered my own question. Okay. The Sith... This is all like hearsay canon because it's like in a weird quasi world until it is official. But the canon that it was established during this period is that a millennia ago, there were thousands of Sith, but they were unable to get their shit together. So Darth Bane eradicated them all and established the rule of two. We'll get into this a little bit later, but with the rule of two, the Sith buried themselves and hid away and decided we're gonna play the long game here and tear the Jedi apart slowly so that we mm -hmm. can truly emerge victorious. Okay, that's good. That answers my, my question, that's good. Um, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are dismissed, but Qui-Gon does not move. He informs the council that he has encountered a virgins in force a boy he believes to be the chosen one. The council agrees to test Anakin. Anakin crushes the test, but the council is dubious. They sense great fear in the boy. Anakin confirms that he is scared to lose his mother, but doesn't see why that matters. Yoda, Frank Oz, assures him that it has everything to do with it. Here is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. The quote that may carry... Uh, the entire uh, prequel trilogy. Yes, yeah, well, one line. this is the crux of Anakin's arc, the entire prequel series. In each movie, he is one step closer because this movie is about his fear. The next one is about his anger. His anger. And then yeah. finally, it gets to the hate and ultimately the suffering that is Darth Vader's perpetual existence. So good. Fed up with the politics and inaction on Coruscant, Amidala uh, plans to go back to Naboo to take take back the planet. Mace Windu, the one and only Samuel L. Jackson, informs Qui-Gon that the council has decided that Anakin will not be trained. Qui-Gon volunteers to train Anakin himself. The council says this is impossible as he still has Obi-Wan as a Padawan. Qui-Gon assures the council that Obi-Wan may be headstrong and needs work in a living force, but is ready for the trials. Mace interrupts, saying now is not the time to The council tasks Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan to continue their guard over Amidala, but more importantly, to dis discover more about the Sith that they have encountered. After the tense meeting, Obi-Wan confronts his master, objecting to Anakin's training, saying, the boy is dangerous. Qui-Gon dismisses his apprentice. Later, Obi-Wan apologizes for his outburst. Qui-Gon gives his apprentice what is perceived as a compliment, but is also a backhanded saying, you are much wiser than I, and I see you becoming a great Jedi Knight. Now, we'll um, talk about more about this later, but this is like Qui-Gon telling Obi-Wan what he will perceive as a compliment, but what Qui-Gon knows is like kind of a dig, because it's very clear from what we've just seen. He does not hold the Jedi Council, nor the Jedi dogma in very high esteem. Again, sure. we'll get to it later. But but these are all, like I said with the chess pieces, this is all, these are all elements that will play into the next two movies. Yeah. All right. Somehow the Nubian yacht makes it through the Trade Federation blockade. How it made it through, I have no idea. Jar Jar brings Amidala to Boss Nass. There it is revealed that Padme is in fact the true queen of Naboo the and asks for his help, <laughs> even bending the knee which, you know, means more in the Game of Thrones. Game of world. Thrones reference. I, I got you. Boss Nass delights in this. 
Mies, I like this. Padme lays out her plan. The Gungans will distract the main droid forces while she sneaks into Thedes to take Gunray hostage. She also readies her pilots to attack the mothership. Boss Nass shows why he was able to fall for a Jedi mind trick, as he is so weak-minded that he instates Jar Jar as the leading general of the Gungans. Holy smokes. <laughs> I gotta say, probably the worst call of any one in this movie, until next movie, when Amidala leaves Jar Jar in charge of the Senate of Naboo. Um, Again, like the show, you know, I like the, the the George Lucas show, The Office, whatever. I like the idea that the fans, like the, the people in the job are against Jar Jar and they're like, listen, he's a silly character. We got to stop making him important. George is like, no, no, no. We have big plans for him in this movie and even bigger plans for him in the next movie. Jar Jar, if you listen to the documentary that I mentioned in the beginning, George Lucas says several times that Jar Jar is the key to this movie. Now, what he was saying in the documentary is that it's because he's the most comedic character that they've ever done. But in reality, what he is saying is the CG of this is the crux. If people don't buy Jar Jar, then it's all finished. Sure. But that was by far the least of the problems with Jar Jar. Um, <laughs> Gunry talks to Sidious, who is shocked by Amadella's aggressive maneuvering. Gunry assures Sidious that he has everything under control, especially with Maul on the planet. Sidious leaves no room for miscommunication, telling Gunry, Wipe them out. All of them. At sunrise, the plan is underway. Uh, through the misty dew of the sunrise, the Gungans make their way to the battlefield. They raid their shields and wait for the droid army to arrive. Meanwhile, the assault on Thede begins. The small insurgents makes it to the main hangar. The pilots load into their ships, including Anakin. Qui-Gon orders him to, quote, stay in that cockpit. The doors open to reveal Darth Maul. Qui-Gon pushes his way forward, saying, we'll handle this. He ignites his dual lightsaber, and the duel of the fates begins. The Gungan battle is not going well, to, to say the least. To say the least. Rather than guns, they have boomba, boombas, which are blue orbs that, hur that they hurl at the enemy. The duel of fates comes to a momentary halt as each knight is caught between blaster shields. Qui-Gon meditates, Maul paces, and Obi-Wan impatiently watches. That's a, uh, just a key, I know we'll talk more about Duel of the Fates, of course, but it's, I think that that's such a key moment for those characters to it's show- It's more of a key than, like you said, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but it's how, definitely a big key. How their behaviors are, how each of them reacts to that moment is very poignant for how, for, to the, who those characters are. In, in Padme, through an extensive shootout, is able to get Gunry hostage. Anakin, meanwhile, inadvertently flies into the enemy's mothership and blows it from the inside. Now this, now this is, is fun. Amazing. Good God. <laughs> the droid army collapses and the Gungans celebrate. The blaster shields open and the lightsabers clash again. Obi-Wan is still not able to make it. Come on, guy. Use the speed force running. You just used it. Uh, he watches his master fall. Obi-Wan takes on Maul himself and nearly is killed. Using the force, he jumps with the with his master saber and slices Maul in half, but not really killing him, as we will talk about probably when during the solo episode. Obi-Wan runs to his master, but doesn't force heal him for some reason. Come on, my guy. 
We just learned about this power in the Rise of Skywalker. Just heal him. Uh, Qui-Gon pleads with his apprentice to train Anakin, imploring Obi-Wan that he is the chosen one. He will bring balance. Now Chancellor Palpatine arrives on his home planet. He makes it a point to talk to Anakin, saying, we will watch your career with great interest. Again, every single scene with this guy. This guy. Uh, Obi-Wan meets privately with Yoda. He informs the Jedi Master that he will train Anakin with or without the permission of the council. Yoda obfuscates. Anakin will be Obi-Wan's apprentice. Qui-Gon's body burns as the Jedi Council and Naboo politicians watch. Uh, as we see, we will... like really bad. You're literally watching you a human... The, you haven't the thought smell. of the smell you said. <laughs> You're literally watching a human being burn. Like, um, that's got to stink. As we... Uh, smells come up in our show a lot, especially with Bong, you know, but it's... Um, and as we will note later, you know, there's a reason he doesn't come to the first ghost, but... You know. Yoda and Mace discuss the Sith encounter. At the fucking funeral. Like, come on, my guys. It's good, though. Be a little bit more respectful. I I love it, though. I love it, the fire revealing. They know the rule of two. Always two there are. A master and an apprentice. Mace asks, but who was was destroyed? The master or the apprentice? And the camera holds on the Palpatine's face. It's probably one of my favorite scenes of this whole movie. What I find fascinating is sometimes for fun i'll watch like reaction videos to the star wars movies oh yeah and some people are shocked to find out that palpatine is sidious and i'm like they'd never hit it they they in one of the opening scenes they show him cloaked and then they have the you know it's i mean i know he's supposed to be in disguise but it's like it's they don't they never hide it ever which is why it's fascinating to me when people are shocked when they get to Revenge of the Sith, because that's the one I like love watching reactions to. Oh yeah, to. well it's got the biggest It's like people are gauge. shocked that this happens. It's like, why? <laughs> They've been telling you for more like several movies. It's the same actor, literally the same fucking actor. <laughs> anyway. And we'll get there, of course. The Gungans are being paraded down Thedes. The parade is a celebration, not just of the trade uh, Federation's fall, but the newfound unity between the Naboo and the Gungans. Anakin now has the braid of an apprentice, which is a note I didn't mention, but with Obi-Wan has the same one in this movie. And I guess that's, you know more about than I do. That's a It Jedi. just means that you're a Padawan. Padme hands Boss Nass a glowing orb, which I also think you know about more than I do. I do. Uh, oh, <laughs> that, okay. I, I, just, th- I think it's just like a symbol. It, it I thought someone mean. said there was a meaning of it. I didn't know anything. Anyway. All right, I'm cool, sure there's cool. a metaphorical meaning to it, but I don't know. Uh, Padme hands Boss Nass a glowing orb. He holds it above his head and proclaims peace. The end. Notable celebration. Not all Star Wars movies end with a celebration. Some of them end in a darker area, but this one does. The end. Holy smokes. So we decided for the Star Wars movies to add a separate category called the Canon Corner. So for those people who do not know, canon it means canonical. It's what Disney has now sanctioned officially happened in the Star Wars universe. For those who don't know, Lucasfilm was acquired by Disney. And Kathleen Kennedy's first act was to declare that every book and every form of media other than the Clone Wars TV series and the original movies to be not canon. They do not, it's not that they're not good, don't get me wrong, the Darth Bane trilogy, fantastic, Darth Plagueis novel, fantastic, not canon. They don't necessarily count toward the story. 
we wanted to focus on what is happening in and around this particular story to just give people a better understanding of the universe at large. So I wanted to focus on two and a half characters this time around. The first one will be Qui-Gon Jinn. So Qui-Gon, you can tell from the onset, is very different than the other Jedi because he does not buy into the dogma of the Jedi bureaucracy that has been established. He is very in tune with the living force. He does not like how political the Jedi got, which he kind of inherited from his own master, Count Dooku, which is why Dooku ultimately, one of the reasons Dooku left the order. We'll get to that next week. Because of his ability to be in tune with the living force, he was the first Jedi to achieve immortality. The power that you see Yoda, Anakin, and Obi-Wan reach at the end of Return of the Jedi, when they're watching the Endor celebration as Force Ghosts, Obi-Wan was the first, uh, sorry, Qui-Gon was the first person to understand how this operates, but he was not able to complete his training before he died. They explain this in the Clone Wars TV they show? They explain this in the Clone Wars TV show. Okay. In fact, he leads Yoda to the realm in which he can achieve this power, where he can learn this power. It's further expand. I mean, there's a line in Revenge of the Sith too, where Obi-Wan is told by Yoda, I have training for you and you will commune with Qui-Gon who will teach you. That's the training he was talking about. So when you see Qui-Gon meditating between those blaster shields, that's what he's doing. He, he can sense that something is going to go wrong and he is preparing his mind and body for the transition into the living force. So he's almost, it's almost like he's preparing, not that he knows he's going to die, but he, he's preparing, I guess, in case that does happen. Yeah. Exactly. That's very interesting. And what I had said during, cause just to, to touch on that is it's, it's very interesting to note their behaviors. Cause you see how they're all trained within the force, be them Jedi or Sith. But you see how the impatience of uh, Obi-Wan and the anger of Darth Maul and then the, the, the meditation of, of Qui-Gon. It's like, there's this certain, there's, it's just where they are in line of their training. It's very interesting to see, to see Qui-Gon who never breaks that character. He's always the, the, the peaceful understood he's like a wise old man so like that's how he behaves anyway he is a very wise old man but like i said he doesn't buy into the bureaucracy of the jedi which again in the clone wars they expand upon and the bureaucracy and political nature that the jedi have gone down is what ultimately leads them to becoming extinct right. they lost their ability to tune in with the living force and follow what was really established. So when I said earlier that quote that Qui-Gon said to Obi-Wan, like you are why you're much wiser than I am and you will make a great Jedi, that's kind of a dig because he's saying you fall in line with the Jedi. You are so bogged down and adhere so much to their dogma that you will make you will do really well within the order. But right. you are like not really like ever going to reach the nirvana that you need to reach, which ultimately sure. Obi-Wan does, but he learns it through uh, ultimate failure in Revenge of the Sith. So what else do you have for the for the canon? 
another character in this movie who is in tune with the living force is Quinlan Voss, who's actually in this movie on Tatooine. You see him in the background. You see him in the background when Jar Jar like grabs the food with his tongue. Mm -hmm. Valorum actually sent him on a mission, which is why he's there. Valorum Uh did like some weird tricky stuff with the Jedi. Uh, but we can learn more about him in the novel Dark Disciple. I'm not really going to focus on him too much because it doesn't matter that much. I just wanted to mention he is in this movie. Mm-hmm. But the other person I wanted to focus on heavily, during this movie, he is still technically the apprentice of Darth Plagueis, which means that Darth Maul broke the rule of two. Darth Maul was never truly a Sith apprentice. He was an assassin that was trained by Palpatine And Palpatine lied to Maul, saying that he could be a Sith apprentice. This is Clone Wars information? What? This is from, you getting this information from Clone Wars? Yeah, well, some of it. Uh, I I really got to pony up and just watch that show, man. (laughs) If you watch Clone Wars, you'll see that Count Dooku takes on several assassin apprentices as well. They will never truly be Sith because there can only be two. But. Yeah, yeah. Maul was sanctioned by Darth Plagueis because they needed a boots on the ground guy. They needed a face. And this guy, Maul, was always kind of like, he is a pawn for the grander plan. Well, and it makes sense that he's more of an assassin character saying about him ready to run over Anakin with his speeder. It's kind of like Maul only has action on the mind. He's ready to fight. He's ready to do whatever Palpatine says and he's exactly. ready to kill and he doesn't really have a, an agenda. He's just going by whatever. It's almost like he's being hired or paid to do what he's doing. Exactly. And part of being a Sith, especially in this era, is that you are in the public purview gaining power because uh, Palpatine, very public character, he becomes Chancellor. Mm-hmm. Plagueis is a moon who is, that's the race of the Trade Federation people. That's how he got into contact with Viceroy Gunry and made those connections through Darth Plagueis. Darth Plagueis was, I don't have his real name because it's not technically canon anymore. Well, it's weird because I think Plagueis is only mentioned, is he even mentioned mentioned in this movie? He is not mentioned in this movie. Because he's mentioned in Revenge Revenge of the the Sith. Now, Plagueis, died the night that Palpatine became chancellor. And that is when the dynamic shift of everything changes because the plan that Plagueis had put into effect was deemed irrelevant at that particular moment. What? That's going to be later on though. Yeah. Palpatine becoming chancellor was always part of the plan, but he was always going to be under... The plan was he was going to become chancellor and the Trade Federation capture of Naboo would lead to a civil war, but that didn't ultimately happen. So they needed to maneuver everything around. Well, cause um, I think it's, it's easy for fans to not understand exactly why the trade federation subplot is so important. Yeah. Because on paper, like when you're watching this movie, just stand alone, like it doesn't, it's just a, it's just a plot device. It doesn't actually really mean anything. Exactly. It's, it's so, so to know that there's deeper meaning Palpatine uh, was able to connect with, like I said, with Viceroy Gunry because his master kind of set up the connections. Sure. But Plagueis at this point kind of is removed from 
the plan of taking over the galaxy and was known as more of an experimenter of the force. Yeah. Which is alluded to heavily in Revenge of the Sith during the Darth Plagueis monologue. And it is rumored that together Plagueis and Palpatine manipulated midi-chlorians to a point that they conceivably were the parents of Anakin Skywalker. I mean, that's, I mean, that's some deep, that's some deep lore that I, I, I have no comment on. I have no, I've never heard that before. So now again, that is technically in the Plagueis book, which is not canon, but there, the line in Revenge of the Sith is he influenced the midi-chlorians that to create life. And he looks directly at Anakin. Mm-hmm. And it is further expunged upon in the Darth Vader comic book where Palpatine is seen hovering. It's a vision Darth Vader is having, but Palpatine is hovering over Shmi Skywalker and literally zapping her stomach, leading people to believe that Palpatine and Plagueis may have had a lot more to do with Anakin's conception. That's pretty cool. That's because I, I always just thought it was a mystery. I never thought of it as anything more than a... Well, this is why Qui-Gon believes that he is the chosen one because the Jedi legend is that an immaculately, like someone birthed from the force will come to bring balance. But it's all a matter of, you know, interpretation. As Yoda will say in Revenge of the Sith, misread the prophecy could be. Mm -hmm. And later on in Rebels we hear that maybe Luke may, might be the chosen one, you know? Sure. And then later on, it could be that Ray is the chosen it's one. The it's, blood, all... it's about the bloodline. And it's all about, and I like that. I kind of like that. It's not, I kind of, as you know, as we've talked about on and off air, it's like, I love ambiguity in movies. So it's, I like that there are theories, but I kind of do like that some of those deeper canons or, or sorry. So some of those deeper theories are not entirely canon because they're left open to interpretation. Yeah. So that's all I got for canon. As always, Josh and I have come up with awards for this uh, new segment we're doing, you know, for the Star Wars genre. Josh, do you want to tell the people what the awards are? Um, we have, in order, most iconic moment, uh, clunkiest dialogue, aka most uh, George Lucas dialogue, um, the John Williams Award. Uh, which for most of these films will be scored by John Williams. We have a couple exceptions, of course. Best creature uh, and or droid design, uh, the standout character, and best use of the Force. So I don't know if you want to take it away. I'll take it it away for most iconic moment. I'll be honest, there were a lot more than I thought there were going to be for this particular movie. But at the end of the day, I'm going to go with the duel of the fates, particularly uh, the moment Darth Maul ignites his dual lightsaber. So good. To me, that's just like, you know, with the, with the music playing behind him, you're just like, oh shit. Like you can't, you can't beat it. No, you're just like, holy shit. I could have gone with the pod racing, but to me, that was like the most iconic moment where whenever I think back to this movie, it always goes back to the duel of the fates. Of course, the whole movie is basically, it boils down to Duel of the Fates. It's not just the most, maybe not plot-wise, it's not the most important scene of the movie. I mean, it does set up the whole relationship between Obi-Wan and, and, and Anakin, of course, but and it's 
then there's the whole crux of what they're fighting for and if, you know but in terms of just everything about the scene i would love to be a fly on the wall or have to have been an audience in the theater as an adult to see the dual lightsabers at the same time because that's just like it is so good and uh is that uh, your pick as well well i i'll focus just more because my runner-up was the pod racing so i'll just say while we're on pod racing i know that's another thing that's gotten flack i think everything but the reason i say it's the reason it's iconic i think aside from it being you could basically nix it from the movie and you wouldn't lose much it's to win anakin's freedom i think one of those visually breathtaking sequences in all of star wars so absolutely and i think I, I just want to note here that that yeah. is almost all CG, which was completely revolutionary in 1999 when it came so, out. Yeah, so I try and put myself uh, in the shoes of, 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 of an audience experiencing something for the first time and thinking outside the box. And so much of Phantom Menace, so much of what is, um, is great about the film, like we said, is, is that it introduces a lot of new elements that had never been seen in Star Wars. Visual cues, um, character traits, um, you know, there are tons of, of little, na- uh, you know, knickknacks, if you will, that are kind of brand new. So when you get to the pod racing sequence, it's kind of like, for me, it's always, it was breathtaking when I watched it as a kid. It's equally, if not more so breathtaking now. And I think part of what excels it even more is the fact that there's almost no music during it. And I think that what that makes it stand out even more because so many of these scenes, Duel of the Fates has this big musical moment of course, we'll, um, we'll be getting to, but it's, um, with pod racing, it's like, as soon as the engines go, it's just sound effects. It's these visual quips that these ships zip by. And it's just like, I, it's from a visual standpoint, it is a, is an, a breathtaking is the only word that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. And there are definitely clear homages to Ben Hur in the, that moment, but. Oh, it's, yeah. It, it's nonetheless breathtaking. So it tell is me, so what good. is your clunkiest dialogue? Lots to choose um, from here. I really hate to take an, uh, to, I mean, it's really, I hate to, to knock the kid while he's down and really just with, with Anakin in general, but yeah. I mean, most of Jake's lines, I think, I don't know if it's the way that they were written or the way that he did them. Um, the, are you an angel line? That, that was literally mind. the one I wrote down. Are you it's, an angel? <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I mean, there's the one I don't, you had, you'd mentioned it in the, in the plot breakdown. I didn't write it down, but that one, I mean, uh, the deep space pilots talk about them. They, you know, whatever they live in the moons of, of wherever, you know, they're, they're the most beautiful creatures in the universe. They're good and kind. So pretty. They, you know, it's like, I, I just think I can just see George cause George doesn't, as we'll get to in the next film, of course, I, George doesn't seem to know, have a good knack on romance. And so it's kind of like, we definitely rom- know the winner of this award next week. I'm like, but go um, on. no, I have nothing else to say about it. I just can't any, like, yeah, I really, lines, Sorry, I thought you were done. <laughs> no, they have the kid. The kids, you know. I guess you know he tried his best, but it's just like I can't. It's the it's the only dialogue. It's not I necessarily just... him. It is truly the dialogue when you start a conversation. Are you an angel? Like <laughs> rough stuff. It's so really let's rough. not kick the kid while he's down. Let's move no, on. Of course. So yeah, of course. the John Williams Award. I feel like there was truly only one answer. I mean, come on, duel of the fates for this one. It's like the most iconic prequel song that has emerged it's somewhat i think john williams has ever done yeah absolutely because it's different than most of his other work too and the fact that it incorporates vocals with musical score where typically it's just don't get me wrong usually 
it's just musical score. And I'm not saying there's a knock, you know, his music is fucking amazing. I listen to it all the time, but this has a vocal element that just amplifies it to like it to quote, uh, what's that movie? We're going to turn it to 11. Um, this is final tap. Oh yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you had mentioned because Duel of Fates is the only obvious did make a runner-up because I had a feeling that would that's what you would say. Yeah. Um, I will say that in terms of in, incorporating the the symphony choir um, with the music, I, I my only other mention was the swim to Oto Gunga when they're going to the palace because or, or they're going to the Gungan city underwater. That's a because good one. That's the first time that they introduce the score in that way. It's a very, you hear the choir kind of building and it, as they, they descend deeper and deeper into the water, you, the kind of the way he does the, the choir with them swimming, it's very, it feels, you know, environmental for that scene. So that's the only other note I had because this is, that's the first time in Star Wars, again, an, another new element to Star Wars. That's the first time you really hear choir symphony vocals among William's score, which is what you just mentioned is, is fabulous. very different and it's fabulous so um best how about creature the uh, design. the best creature or droid design um who am i up yeah um so I feel like my this one also is one answer but go on. well i i actually had a couple runner-ups um i ultimately well i was gonna say uh jar jar was a runner-up uh, just, I mean, it's really just the Jar Jar is definitely alone. runner up for me as well. I don't like um, the character necessarily, but the, visually, visually, it's the design. It still holds up, which is stunning. I, I also put the pod racers together collectively as a runner up, which may be cheating, but I've just said that the cheating, visual character, the visual neck for them. But I actually had Watto as my 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 best creature. Really? Um, yeah, I liked. That's I just another loved. character that fell under the racist purview of like being um, a Mexican racist junker. <laughs> Yeah, I just love the way he's with the the missing teeth, and he's got like the like the 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 trunk, but he's got the wings. Um, I think the character it's a very simple, and he's a very funny, uh, you know, simple character. But it's just um, I don't know. That's where my mind went to. What was yours? To me, the character, the best character design was Darth Maul. Just like I said in the beginning, there was the quote that it came from the darkest nightmares of uh, in whatever Mick whatever his name was, I can't remember. But to me, the character design of that was so haunting that George Lucas put it on every poster. And Darth Maul, like we said, has three lines in this entire movie. He's in the movie maybe 10 minutes total. Um, and he steals the entire show, you know, and it's purely based on his design. Uh, yeah, I I didn't add him because I didn't I I don't see the creature, but I mean he is more he's definitely not like human, so it's kind of like uh, that's just where my my mind was. I was thinking like more of a CG uh, kind of standpoint, but no, I mean with Maul's design, I mean everything between the makeup and the horns and the contacts, like it is, I mean it's a stunning look. But yeah, so <laughs> standout character, I went with Qui Gon Jinn. I just feel like. From the moment he's on the screen, you could tell that there's something different about him. Maybe not. It, let me. Obi Wan and Yoda kind of get to where he is ultimately in the sequel trilogy, but it takes them a long time to break the politics of the Jedi and immerse themselves into the Living Force. But Qui Gon, from the onset, is clearly different than any Jedi of this era. And to me, I 
think he is the wisest Jedi, especially in this movie. And everything he says just hits a depth. So to me, he's the standout character. He's certainly the most unique because he, like I said, he rep, he almost represents a wise old man. Like he he basically represents like what you had just were, were saying, alluding to is like he represents what Obi Wan is in A New Hope. Like Obi Wan like lives his entire life to kind of get to that point. Um, he's he brings a kind of like a humble mentor mentality right from the opening scene. And like I said before, he never breaks character. He's always that character. He never loses his cool. He never, he's, and it, and, the, and what I love is because he's only in this movie, there's so much mystery shrouded behind him. My pick, because Qui-Gon was my runner-up, was, was Darth Maul. Just to kind of go into what you were saying about the design, the, the whole character is shrouded in mystery. Him having three lines, he's barely on screen. I mean, the the idea of the Phantom Menace being Darth Maul, but also like it can he's be ambiguous. The Phantom no. Menace really could. I mean, he is. You can make the argument he is the Phantom Menace, but the Phantom Menace is Palpatine. Right, but like they have him. Like what I mean, it's like from a, in like from a surface level standpoint, he's splashed on all the posters. He's in the yeah. background. He's the eyes. So for him so. to think, so for you to think that he's like the Phantom Menace and like the whole idea, his character being as mysterious as he is. Now, mind you. I have not explored for folks that all my claim. It's just I should have said at the beginning of the episode a disclaimer that I'm a I claim to be a Star Wars fan and yet have not, as of this recording, I'm not caught up on Clone Wars Rebels or the Mandalorian because I'm just terrible. But so <laughs> I understand that there's more lore to uh, Darth Maul and his brother and their that whole race. But what I love about Phantom Menace is, um, as just the character of Maul alone is that there's so little we know about him at this point. I think it makes him all the more terrifying that we don't know anything about him. Um, and every time he's on screen, it's just kind of like, it's so, he's got, he's in the, the movie for so little until the end of the movie. He's barely in it. And then he's he's just completely captivating and it I, I don't know everything between the dual lightsabers we never saw that again again in the films it just yeah we do I'm... I mean in solo we don't he's he is carrying a dual lightsaber he doesn't ignite it but he does I mean no other character no other character has to I mean like in the we movies, never yeah in the movies yeah, but so. if you watch Clone Wars and Re yes you know, I'm they, sure that there's more stuff right so but um, but until we get to that point you we know, will focus more on Maul during the solo episode because we've covered so much that I didn't feel like we had time to cover him and his background no, and everything. Um, there's not enough that I think could be, I don't think there's more that could be said about Maul in this film. I think no. that he's, he's so good. And I just, the fact that he and Qui-Gon both meet their noble ends or whatever you want to call it well, for now. Noble end. Um, it's, it's ironic that they're both the best characters. I think of some of the so best entire use world. of the force go for it. Um, the best use of the force, ultimately there were, uh, key moments. I think that the one for me, I think that was not just maybe the most, well, again, it's not really plot driven. Um, sorry, it's not, it's not driven to the central story, but the moment where Obi-Wan's, uh, you know, dangling and he uses the force to, to catch Qui-Gon's lightsaber. Ironically, that is mine as well. And yeah. make the leap. I mean, I, there are other great moments, um, you, you know, with, with Qui-Gon, you know, when he's on Tatooine and trying to convince people or when they convince Boss Nass and whatnot. And um, there are moments where the force plays into a key, into, you know, environment of the movie. But really that moment at the end is Obi-Wan's kind of transformation from his point of like, he's on his own, Qui-Gon's dead. Now he has no choice but to use the force. So I think it's a pretty powerful moment, but I'll yeah. let you elaborate on it more. Well, that was my answer. The only other answer I had, the runner-up, 
uh, is kind of a cheat and it's Anakin himself because as it is alluded to in this film, he is created by the force. He is a creature. I mean, he is human, but he is literally gestated by the living force. Whether Palpatine and Plagueis had something to do with it or not, the midichlorians impregnated Shmi. So, but again, that's like kind of a cheat. So I- No, it's, I, that's good. The best showing of the force in this movie was clearly Obi-Wan tuning into it and using it to slice Maul in half, even if it doesn't necessarily kill Maul. It's, good, uh, it's a good moment for the character. So I think it stands out the most. But yep. uh, sounds like it about uh, wraps up the awards. So let's get into final thoughts. Tell me, what you can start the conversation off. Go for um, it. There's so much I want to say that I've kind of just been leading nuggets throughout this whole episode. And it's kind of like I've been wanting to say like almost my entire life in, in this movie is that I've never understood. You got a total of two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really understood the flack it gets. Uh, part of what I was saying earlier is that I, we, we kind of grew up with it. I had a VHS tape of it as a child. It's just like I never really understood anything but what I knew, which was a childlike perspective of what the movie was. And even when I didn't understand it or was bored by the politics, I was it was still a Star Wars movie in my mind. So I have an adoration for this movie, but it's also like I get older and I see between Jar Jar Binks being a silly character or, like I said, or the politics taking up more time and than they would, then you would think that I can see why people are upset with it. I can see why, you know, midi chlorians and all the things we discussed throughout this episode uh, being faults of the film. I can see the faults and yet I still come back to it. And I'm like, I don't, uh, I, it doesn't bother me. The, the things that people complain about don't get in the way of my love for this franchise. My future movies, which the movies being what they are, will get in the way of my love for the franchise. This is not, I'm not distracted by any of the faults going on in this movie. So I just, I, I love the world building. I love how different it is. I love that it sets up brand, a brand new world. The ships are completely different. And character designs are completely different. The CGI, the, the lightsabers, the, the use of the, of the force. And like, and there are so many brand new elements we've never seen before in the Star Wars universe having come off the original trilogy. So I just love how many building, I love that it's a building block that even though the movie may be completely irrelevant, except for, Anakin's ascending into the Jedi world. The movie's really kind of irrelevant, but I, I to me is sorry to cut you off, but that's yeah. like kind of the problem I have with this movie. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, I'll, I'll get into my admiration for it in a minute, but yeah, yeah, like you just said, is this movie necessary? I don't particularly know. I heard a com like uh, another uh new uh, movie pundit say that the best Anakin and Obi-Wan relationship he ever saw was X-Men First Class uh, with Magneto and Charles Xavier. That comparison, it's great. And when I heard that, it clicked in my brain immediately that Phantom Menace is not necessarily needed. Sure. You, know, you didn't need to start with Anakin as a child. I get what George Lucas was going for, showing that something as innocent as this child can be corrupted by the dark side. I get it. And yes, it, in theory, it is a powerful message. But part of the problem with the prequels is you could have truncated them into two movies if you really 
wanted to or make it a trilogy but i don't know there was probably a different way to do it that being said though i am a firm believer judging what you have not with what could be and what we have the more we step away from this movie is a it's more fun than i remember it being wait it's very entertaining like josh and i were saying there are a lot more one-liners in this movie than even i remembered like uh, if i'm gonna throw on a star wars movie this is never like the first one i go to so it's been like two years since i've last seen it i want to say and i had like a blast watching it there's a lot of sequences in this movie that are now iconic one-liners that are iconic and as I was saying in the beginning, I think that George Lucas was just ahead of his time when making this. A lot of Hollywood used, not just the technology he was using, but some of the story elements he was using. It, Game of Thrones kind of used this as a launching pad of what not to do in regards to politics. Like, how do we make politics interesting? Well, don't do what the Star Wars prequels did. Right. You know? There's interesting elements, but, you know, explore them more and make them more visually uh, appealing and just, you know, there there are ways to do it right, you know? Yeah. Now, to counter-argue what I was saying before about is this movie needed, you listen to the guy like Dave Filoni, who in the Mandalorian Gallery show on Disney+, Plus, which I recommend everyone watching, it's like a behind-the-scenes look at uh, Star Wars. He goes off on the seven-minute brilliant monologue about how the duel of the fates matters through the entirety of the original saga. And the point he is making is the counter argument to what I was just saying, that Anakin's fall to the dark side was the fact that he never had a father figure. Mm -hmm. Obi-Wan felt that he had to take on Anakin as an apprentice, not out of love for the child but because of duty and loyalty to Qui-Gon that's what Qui-Gon wanted yeah that is Qui-Gon's literal last uh request it is his dying wish that Obi-Wan watch over and train Anakin so Obi-Wan does it begrudgingly but does it as a brother not as a father where and he even says in Revenge of the Sith you were my brother and Anakin needed a father, not a brother. And it's, it's yeah. not Obi-Wan's fault. He can't be what more than what he is. He still felt like he was Qui-Gon's child. And Qui-Gon was taken away from him. So, you know, again, it, it, that's the counter argument to the argument I was making earlier. It's just I, like, I, I, I don't know. I think that I think that what makes and like I think that this does the what you just mentioned about Dave Filoni's video and and that his his whole thesis really on on the importance of the duel of fates being the crux of the whole franchise is exactly why these prequels are important because it's like movie to movie you can complain about them all you want but there's the congruent theme that leads all the way to Return of the Jedi where you know Return of the Jedi is not about Luke Skywalker it's about Darth Vader. And, what, and that was never true until these movies came out because what you're doing is you're watching the transformation of a, of, a, of a hero of sorts, a child become the villain of the story. But ultimately they are the one, it's the same character who makes the decisions he does return the Jedi. So this will be a recurring conversation because it really is the theme. And it makes 
Star it's it's the beginning of what makes Star Wars special. If you're going chronologically, because all of a sudden you're creating themes of 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 value and family and importance, and it's kind of what gets lost in the sequel trilogy a little bit. Because I was about it's, to say that the I, I'm not here to knock the sequel trilogy, but there is something to be said about George Lucas having a vision from one to six where it feels like there is a solid story behind it. Of course. Where the trill the sequel trilogy is floundering in trying to find its own purpose. Yes, I love The Last Jedi, but at the end of the day, you can ask the grander question, what was the point of the sequel trilogy on the whole? Where mm -hmm. the prequels, you know from the onset, the purpose is to show you Anakin's descent just like the originals were to show you uh, Luke's ascent and ultimately Darth Vader's redemption. Where the sequel trilogy, it's like they're floundering. There's no true purpose behind them. And of course, or, we'll get there when we get there. I think, yeah, again, we'll get there when we get there. But I think the closest we came was The Last Jedi when Ryan Johnson was saying the purpose is what do the children and grandchildren of the previous players, how do they reconcile with their family, with their family's old actions? I'm not even going to speak because I have so much to say about it and we'll, we'll do it in our episode. But yeah, no, it's true because it's ultimately, I think the key to what Dave Filoni was saying and the key to Star Wars is the congruent themes. Yeah. And like we were just saying not to knock, but that is what gets lost in the Super Trilogy because it's congruent. It's like, like I said, despite good or bad things anyone wants to say about any of these movies from phantom menace to return of the jedi there is a congruent theme there is those running lines of of like i said the uh, the dynamics the family and whatever the the whatever the the themes and character traits are that echo themselves there's a reason that family is such a big thing and that history repeats itself and that's what i love about both force awakens but really about last Jedi basically saying history repeats itself and i love that because they're saying well well now that history repeats itself how do you change history with a character that is not connected to anything now i'm speaking only with continuity up until last shit i'm not talking about uh, rise of skywalker because it uh, undoes the, the continuity but i where that ends and of course i'll make a, a whole speech about that in last Jedi because i think that it's very poignant to come back full circle and say well look at where your roots and where you came from and look at how things have changed yeah. this is all about time and this is all about generations and this is all about learning and growing and it begins with these building blocks from phantom menace they set it up very early on i think understood that and i want to also put a focus on just the monumental leap say what you will about george lucas's writing and storytelling one thing you can never say is that he doesn't push the bounds of what is possible the of course monumental leap in cg technology in this movie you can argue it made things better or worse in hollywood but what you cannot deny is that it changed hollywood forever yeah and some of the cg in this movie looks better than half of what we get today yep Jar Jar Binks still looks like flawless to me. The only character I was a little wonky was Boss Nass, but he was like a background character anyway. Right, right, right. But, you know, the droids look pretty fucking real. I love Every, it. 
you know, there's a lot, the pod racing is immaculate and most of that is CG. And it's just astounding to me that they did this in 1999. It's good. No, they, they, they took all the eggs in their basket and they made it work. I mean, it's, it's almost, it's a, it's a very different comparison, but very similar in the same way that what Peter Jackson did with Lord of the Rings is that they took what they had with technology. I'm just talking about Phantom Menace is that they took their, what they have with technology and they said, well, how can we utilize this the most? How can we take advantage of technology and make it the most visually appealing? Because this is arguably the most visually appealing of the three prequels. Yeah. But I mean, they, they of course change once they go digital. So it's, a, it's kind of a different argument, you know? Yeah. So I think that's a good place to end the conversation. We've gone on for quite some time about Phantom Menace. Uh, so tell us, Josh, do you have a pick of the week? I do. And it's unexpected, but I'm going to go with uh, Roland Emmerich's 1998 hit, uh, Godzilla. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, so I, I think of movies that kind of get a, get a lot of flack, and I've, that's another one. It, only a year before this, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, a fun, disastrous adventure movie. Uh, the CGI does not hold up. It is not very uh, convincing, but they went for it. Roland went for the digital, uh, you know, uh, nugget the way that Lucas did. I just think I love I love the characters. I love how goofy and silly it is. And Godzilla just looks like a big lizard that offended the Japanese so much that they changed his name. I think in that lore, they don't even consider it canon. I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just uh, everything about it with, it with the big footprints and the Gojira, and then the, of course there's then the Godzilla lays the baby eggs in Madison Square Garden, and it's absurd. Um, the more that people <laughs> rail against it, I think the more I've come to defend it because I've seen it multiple times. Like I have a fan of Menace. Maybe it's because I also grew up with it in that same era. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man. When I just gravitate towards something, no matter how bad or ridiculous people say it is, I kind of just stick to my guns. That's so, a good one. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna let me give a controversial shout out and that's a good uh, one that's where i'll stop for my pick of the week i'm gonna go with another george lucas movie that is kind of underrated uh i'm gonna go with indiana jones and the temple of doom nice uh again a movie where the ideas maybe supersede what is actually being filmed and i rewatched it last year at the beginning of the pandemic i rewatched all of the indiana jones movies except the fourth one um but template doom is a lot darker and a lot grittier and hits a lot more adult themes than the other indiana jones movies and in that regard it reminded me of the phantom menace where the phantom menace is empirically darker than the original trilogy I mean, they lighten it up with jokes and one-liners, but the politics of it are more more mature, like we were saying. And Temple of Doom is just a more mature film. Oh yeah, it's that's that's that. I don't want to say it ages the best because even the all three of the original trilogy of Indiana Jones, yeah. all, well, all, I've all do well. But I think in terms of what you're saying, in terms of like the darker themes, I think I it gets better as time goes on. Temple and of I Doom. guess like the Phantom Menace, it also has some racial issues. Well, I mean, yeah, that's just that's just Hollywood in general. It's always every couple generations you can look back and be like, this is a bit of a tricky decision. But I love Temple of Doom. I think it's great. Classic. So I think that's a good place to end this episode. Uh, Where can the people find you, Josh? People can find me at Letterboxd under Beesh, B-E-E-S-H. It's exactly how it sounds. And uh, tell the people at home where they can find you, Stephen. 
Uh, you can find me on Instagram and letterbox at Mr. Filmart, and you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Whose Filmography. Yeah. So next week, prepare yourself because the Clone Wars is about to begin. Oh boy. Oh boy. We'll see you next week. So much sand. <laughs>